Isaiah 58 is our text this morning. Grab a Bible and turn to that passage, please. It is clear in the Word of God that no man is saved from God's eternal judgment by his own good works. Our good works will never be enough to satisfy what we owe to God. For having done all, we are worthless servants. In fact, even our good deeds that we do are tainted, aren't they? So often by sinful motives and imperfections of obedience. There is no way in God's great salvation that anyone comes by means of his own effort, by his own obedience. But God, through his own beloved Son himself, took upon him the mantle of obedience on our behalf. Amen? Praise the Savior who obeyed perfectly on behalf of his people, even to death, even death on a cross he obeyed. And he bore in his body the just judgment and condemnation for our disobedience, for our sins against God, those crimes that we could never pay and still have any hope of entering into life and fellowship with God. The Savior and the Savior alone is what the Christian message is all about, right? The Christian message means that you, the only way you can come into God's presence is as a beggar, as Isaiah says, without money, coming to a feast that has been laid out for you without price, bought at the sacrifice of someone else, and laid out before you freely. That is the only way any one of us can come. Christianity is a humbling religion. It is all about boasting in another and not ourselves. But on the other hand, those who become God's children that way, by grace, through faith in that Savior, are granted a new life, a new spirit, a heart to obey God, right? And they do. They keep God's law. They obey his word from their hearts. They are a transformed people and a people being transformed. And this is a kind of evangelical obedience, an obedience that comes from faith by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us to bring Christ's life to fruition in us. This is what these chapters are about. It's a call to obey the Lord God, not in the strength of the flesh, not as an act or acts of merit before God, but in the strength of the Lord Christ and His Spirit, and as an act of faith and obedience to our Lord. Now, the Lord addressed his people, those who were ostensibly his people, people of Israel, and among those people, he had to deal very severely, and we saw this last chapter, with 
a group of people who were characterized by insolent idolatry. Their idolatry in the midst of the land of Israel was flagrant and public. On the high places, they gave themselves to all kinds of sexual immorality in the worship of other gods. And in the darkest valleys, they burned their children as an offering to a filthy pagan devil. And the Lord dealt with those people. They would be devoured, he said. He would bring the beasts of the earth to devour them. And, you know, we heard that sermon last week. That text was what God had for us, and there's a place for that. But I do know that it's easy, it can be easy for us to sort of shake our head and tusk-tusk at the blatant wickedness of the world around us. But in this text, the Lord deals with other sin that is far more subtle because this sinfulness is disguised under a veneer of religious worship of the true God. These are people who are worshiping in one sense according to the law that God's going to deal with now. And I think now, of all, of all these passages here of late, these things really hit closer to home. This is where we squirm. This is where we are called to really be um, examining of our own selves. So let's read the Word of God now, Isaiah 58. The Lord says to his prophet, Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments and delight to draw near to God. The Lord says to them, Why have you, fa or excuse me, they say to the Lord, Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke and let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when, they see you, when you see the naked to cover him? and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. 
Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. He will, he, you shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, the spreading, the speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt and you shall raise up the foundation of many generations. You shall be called a repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." God's people said, Amen. In this text, we see, first of all, a call of God, God's call upon the prophet to make a declaration of guilt, to declare the guilt of his people. The Lord charges Isaiah right in the very first verse, Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet and declare to my people their transgressions and to the house of Jacob their sins. Even God's true people are sometimes guilty of transgression and sin. And God in those times raises up ministers. He raises up prophetic voices to declare it to them. And that is, of course, an important aspect of Preaching and pastoral ministry is to proclaim and to declare the sins of God's people, to charge them, to make it plain and make it clear that they must turn and be right with their God. He instructs his prophet regarding the manner in which he is to make this declaration. He is to cry aloud. The word cry here is not just usually a word that means calling out to someone as much as it is translated as um, calling someone by a name or naming someone, naming something, calling it by name. And, and he calls him to name sin publicly, verbally, name it aloud to declare to my people their transgression, their sins. And it's one of the things that ministers are called to do, to publicly call out sin, to name it for what it is, to take God's side against all of our iniquity, to agree with Him, to say what He says about it, to name it according to God's own word, and not to hold back, He says. Because, I'll tell you, that is often the natural tendency of God's human spokesman. To hold back when he ought not to. To keep silent when he ought to have spoken. 
And maybe it's because, in some cases, of a fear of man, a fear of disapproval or the consequences of what might come from speaking so clearly about sin. Or perhaps he is timid because he feels the condemnation of himself under that law. Or perhaps he's tempted by his own misplaced sense of compassion. But there's always a temptation in any human being to hold back. And so the Lord puts his ministers under a holy charge. Say what I say about sin and do not hold back. This is something, of course, that every divinely commissioned leader really needs to pay heed to. And on the other hand, it's something that every church member should remember when he is admonished by the pastoral ministry of the word and he's tempted perhaps to be bitter, to argue back in his own mind, to make excuses, to be dismissive of it. Listen, he is not resisting the minister, but is resisting the Lord God himself, provided that minister is faithfully proclaiming the word of that Lord. And he tells him, lift up your voice like that, name that sin, don't hold back as you might be tempted to do, and lift up your voice like a trumpet, he says, like a a shofar. You've seen the ram's horn shofars. Lift up your voice. Proclaim what God says about sin with the clarity of the trumpet. Remember, Paul said, if, if the trumpet gives an uncertain sound, who will prepare himself for battle? What the Lord calls is for spokesmen to proclaim with clarity what the Lord says. And the problem that the the, the, uh, prophet was called to address among the people of Israel was sin and transgression, but sin and transgression that was obscured by a facade of religious worship. It's so much easier to condemn the idolaters on the hilltop than it is to condemn the Pharisees in the temple. These people seem to have a great deal of righteousness. Externally, they are very careful to keep God's law, but they're sinning, they're transgressing against their God. And he says, in spite of their sin and transgression, verse 2, here's the complication, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. They say, tell us the ways of God. They're not saying to the prophet, we don't want to hear what you have to say. They're saying, tell us what God has to say. They're seeking him daily, they're praying. And they do this as if, he says, they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. So isn't that strange? On the one hand, they're asking for the judgments of God, for God to proclaim his ways among them. And on the other hand, they are forsaking those very judgments and ways. They ask me, God says, for righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. So who are we talking about? Who's being addressed in this chapter then? Right? 
Sort of different from the last chapter, isn't it? These are people who are seeking the Lord daily. They're having their daily prayer time, right? Their daily devotions, as it were. That's the people who are being addressed today. It's people who go to church. People who enjoy sermons. It's people who love talking about theology. Maybe they go to Bible conferences or read good Christian books. They rightly condemn the sinful excesses of the world around them that's so wicked. These are the people who are being addressed. They haven't dealt with their sin, their own sin. And in spite of all of their outward worship, God is distant from them. They ask in verse 3 this question, Why have we fasted, God, and you don't see it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? They've gone, obviously, beyond um, just the bare worship that's prescribed in the law, even to uh, a point of uh, extended fasting, daily seeking after God. There's really only one day in which God's people were commanded to fast in the law, but these people are, are going beyond it. I mean, th- this is kind of the height of religious zeal, wouldn't you say? I mean, if you hear somebody's fasting and it's going on day after day after day, you look, at the, you look up to them. This is a great Christian. They're seeking, the, they're here, they, they're, they're asking for the, the ways of God to be proclaimed. They're fasting and praying that he would answer their prayers. From all outward appearances, these are godly people. But that's exactly the problem. It is all outward appearance. Why won't God hear them? The answer again in the middle of verse 3, Behold, in the day of your fast, you... Now pay attention to this. Here's God's answer to them. In the day of your fast, you seek what? You seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers and behold you fast only to quarrel and fight and hit with a wicked fist what did the lord tell them was the problem well in the first case their fasts their prayers were for their own pleasure the word is often translated desire for your own desires you fast for them it seems like religion had come, become about getting God to fulfill my desires rather than doing the will of God for which I was created. Listen, we were created to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. But when we seek our ultimate joy in something else rather than God, when we take our God-given desires and they become self-oriented passions rather than fuel for pursuing joy in God, we find God to be distant and ourselves to be unsatisfied. This is the wisdom of God. James says it this way, you ask. That's what these people were doing, right? They were asking with Fasting. James says, you ask and you do not receive. Why? 
because you ask wrongly to consume it or spend it on your passions. God rightly charges you with sin and transgression when you seek your own passions rather than seeking him as your great pleasure. Even in the midst of fasting, you can fast to get your own desire satisfied. You can fast to fulfill your own passions. Passion is a desire that is not ultimately focused on God himself. And one of the passions that people so often get consumed with and seek after is a desire for material prosperity. Isn't that the reason a lot of people pray? Isn't that the reason a lot of people fast? That God would give them more material prosperity. And, and again, material prosperity itself is not wrong. This is, this is the gift of God. But, is, but it becomes a fast or a seeking after prosperity apart from the God who gives it. As almost an end in itself. Then it becomes the evil of covetousness, which the apostle says is the same thing as what? As idolatry. Covetousness, which is idolatry, because in covetousness, God becomes a means to an end. God's the means. Your idol is the end. Whatever is the end, that's your true God. And to that same end, he says to them, you oppress all your workers. They were mistreating their workers in order to get more for themselves, squeezing a little bit more out of those who labored for them in order that they could be more comfortable for themselves. And of course, that kind of Spirit, that kind of behavior, often, and you know this from life, it so often leads to conflict. And that's exactly what he says. Behold, verse 4, you fast only to quarrel and fight and hit with a wicked fist. So they're oppressing their workers. They're getting to fights and quarrels, even while they're going to fast before the Lord, that he would bless them, right? And this is, of course, a time of of great distress. God's judgment is upon the nation, and they're, they're, they're languishing. They're, they're, the dark days are coming, and, and they're getting desperate, and they're, they're, but what they really want ultimately doesn't seem in this moment to be God, but the, but the material blessing that God might bring them, and it manifests itself in their fights and in their quarrels. Again, James makes the same, just makes the same point almost exactly. In James chapter 4, he said, where do quarrels and where do fights come from among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And here, here's, how, here's the dynamic of it. He says, you desire and you can't get what you desire, you don't have, and so you murder to get it. Or... To say it another way, in a much more uh, socially acceptable way, 
you covet, and you cannot obtain what you covet, so you fight and quarrel. So the word of God comes to people like that, that you fighting, quarreling, in order to obtain your way. Coming to church, sitting here, listening to the word of God, saying, God, I want to know your ways. And then going back to your home, back to your place of work, and being consumed with getting your own desire fulfilled. And it shows. It shows in the way that you respond when you're outside of these four walls, when you're not sitting there dressed all nicely and singing the praises of God. The word of God comes to us. It hits home. And for this reason, because they were responding like this, the Lord says in the end of verse 4, fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Now in verses 5 to 7, the Lord turns it all around. And he begins to question the people. And so you have here an inquiry regarding God's expectations regarding fasting and praying and seeking his face. He asks, verse 5, Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Do you get what he's asking? He's questioning them about what? What's being described in verse 5? These are all the externals of fasting, right? Bowing down your head, spreading out sackcloth, getting low before God. And listen, there's nothing wrong with all of those things. When your heart really is low before God. Sometimes you make your body low before God. But just the outward motions of the fast don't necessarily communicate the reality of the inner repentance before God. And that, of course, is the problem. These people were fasting without real repentance. They were observing the outward form without the real heart of it. And, of course, that is so often the grave the grave danger for, for us, for us who, who do attend this church faithfully week after week after week. It is the danger that we might conform outwardly with regard to what people see. We look very godly, and, and maybe we're even sincere in our own way. We really want God to get us out of our trouble. But we're completely missing the inner reality of repentance and obedience to God. And again, he comes to them with a rhetorical question in verse 6. The Lord is still questioning them. He says, Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness. To loose the bonds of of wickedness. This is a characteristic of a true fast. The bonds of wickedness, those unjust enslavement of people or contractual obligations, the bonds that are entered into through wickedness or deceit. 
The fast that I choose, the Lord says, is it not to loose the bonds of wickedness and to undo the straps of the yoke and to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Remember that the law commanded that slaves be freed and debts be remitted every seven years. You know, that was a part of the law. And, after, and the year after every seven sevens, the 50th year. But, of course, people being what they are, many of them developed quite elaborate schemes in order to circumvent the intent of God's law, even while appearing very scrupulous about it. Just like the Pharisees did with the Sabbath. Wasn't this the whole issue Jesus kept dealing with them about? They look like the best Sabbath keepers in the whole land, and they were completely missing it. That's what's going on here. I mean, what is a fast really supposed to be about at its heart, if not self-denial? And here were people who were outwardly, publicly doing acts of self-denial but in reality, they were doing anything but denying themselves. They were doing everything to consume it on their own desires, their own passions. What is the fast I desire, says the Lord? Verse 7, he says, Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to clothe him, to cover him? And not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Of course, we have example in the New Testament of the Pharisees who were very meticulous about the law, but actually used the law in order to get around taking care of their own flesh, their own parents in their old age. Is it possible to be a very religious person and have a heart far from God? Oh, most certainly. And of course... Paul said to Timothy that he should teach that if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It's amazing. It is amazing how greed and covetousness can get such a foothold in a very religious person. Say, well, I, I know that. I know that all too well, perhaps. For it's gotten a foothold in my own heart time and again. The Lord, listen, our Lord today has a word for us. If your desire is to really do God's pleasure, then He desires that you share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house. Do we do that? He desires for us to feed and clothe and shelter the most vulnerable, especially orphans and widows. As a church, as individuals, James, we read it earlier, if a brother or sister, he says, is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, I mean, we're talking about real, you know, life needs here. And he says, one of you sees him, and you say to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, but with, you don't give him the things that are needed for the body. What good is that, he says. 
so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And God forbid that our faith, in the end, be proved to be dead. We get so caught up in greed and covetousness that even while we go through the outward forms of religion, we really have denied the very heart of it. Which is what? What is the heart of real religion? But to love God with all our heart and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Covetousness, of course, is not exclusively the sin of the rich. You don't have to be rich to have a covetous heart. A man can refuse to work and then expect the government to take what belongs to others and give it to him. It's the same covetous spirit, isn't it? But this text really focuses on those of us who have more than enough to feed ourselves and to clothe ourselves. Why does God give us more than what we really need? To give. To give, to bless. It's what he says. To bless all men, and especially those of the household of faith. And particularly those who have no family to support them. And you know, I think it is, it is probably very possible to be so jaded by the abuse that is government welfare that we harden our hearts when real, genuine needs are right in front of us. We get so used to fighting against a certain kind of thinking that we're not open to really obeying the Lord in the right way about commands like this. This is a recurring theme throughout the scripture. It's not an isolated thing. It comes up again and again that we would not miss it. Deuteronomy, the law, God gave to his people this word, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. In the Proverbs, Proverbs 14, 31, whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, and he who is generous to the needy honors his maker. Proverbs 19.17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. Proverbs 21.13, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered, which is exactly what's happening here in Isaiah. In Luke chapter 20 and verse 46, the Lord said, Beware of the scribes who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Wow. Romans chapter 12, verse 13, Paul instructs the Roman church to contribute to the needs of the saints and to show hospitality. He tells Timothy, in 1 Timothy 6, As for the rich in this age, they are to do good and to be rich in good works. Rich. 
Are you rich? Are you rich in good works? To be generous and ready to share, he says. The writer of Hebrews says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And of course, James has reminded us that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the fatherless, to visit the fatherless, the the orphans and the widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And John, for his part, says, if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? How in the world can a person who feels the unmerited outpouring of the love of God hold back a heart of love from his brother? Little children, he says, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And this is one of those areas that we are going to have to examine our our hearts. Are we singing the songs of praise to God and then mistreating those who are made in God's image and his likeness? How can this be? Are you and I really loving and giving to others as freely as God has given to me? The Lord deals with his people. They are fasting formally But God says, I want you to deny yourself truly. And if you will, then the Lord promises blessing on true religion. Verses 8 and following. A blessing on true religion. Then, he says, look at verse 8. Here's a turning point now. Then, if you will do this, then shall your light, the light, Of the countenance of God, then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing, your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. The Lord will surround his people with his presence. Then, verse 9, you shall call, and listen to this, and the Lord will answer. And you shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. Listen, the Lord is near to those who truly worship him, those who worship him with true, humble repentance. The Lord hears, the Lord answers. And if you feel like the Lord is is far and he's refusing to answer when you call, listen, he is not unwilling to answer. He is not stingy like you are. He is willing to say, here I am. No, it's our sins that are keeping us from drawing near to God and Him drawing near to us. It's our sins that are hidden by this pretense of religion, by this this outward form of godliness. So while we read the Bible and pray and come to church and talk about theology, where is our heart? God wills to be found by you, but he will not be manipulated by anyone. But he will pour out his blessing, verse 9, middle of the verse, if if you take away the yoke 
from your midst, if you stop oppressing other people, if you take away the pointing of the finger, perhaps in false accusations or mockery of some sort, if you take away speaking wickedness, you forsake lies and the manipulation of others. And verse 10, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom as the noonday. And listen to the promises, listen to the blessings, and the Lord will guide you continually. Oh, what a blessing! To have the Lord walk before you and behind you and accompany you continually through this life. To have the continual communion of God. And he will satisfy your desire in the scorched places, the ESV says. In the dry, scorching desert of life, he will cause you to be satisfied. He'll cause waters of life and provision and blessing to spring up where no one would have expected for those who are surrounded by his presence. And he will make your bones strong. You will be upheld by the strength of God himself. And the result in the end of verse 11 is that you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail, being refreshed and nurtured by the Lord perpetually like a spring that's not intermittent. Fellowship and communion with God, a spring of blessing that is always flowing. That's what God promises. That's what he holds out to people who forsake their hidden evils of their heart and truly humble themselves before him. Isn't that what we all long for? The the permanent, ongoing presence of God and blessing on our lives. And then he says, verse 12, and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. So the true city of God is built by people who are not merely going through the motions, not merely observing external religion, but people whose heart is desirous after God himself and desirous for others around them. This is not half-hearted, merely ritual observance. This is true fasting and rejoicing. And, and it goes on for the Sabbath as well, and we'll come to this again later But verses 13 and 14, he deals with Sabbath-keeping. These are people who kept the Sabbath, who observed the holy day. Oh, they looked like godly people, but they did not have God as their great desire in that Sabbath. Listen to me. Whoever in here may be living as a hypocrite. You know what a hypocrite is, right? Somebody who puts on a mask, and you put on your Sunday mask. You come and you, you smile and you greet and you sing the songs of Zion. And then with those same lips with which you bless God, you go home and curse your spouse. You oppress those whom he has made 
in his image and likeness. And the way you treat that person shows that your religion is in grave danger of being proved worthless. A hard heart that you have towards others that you consider flawed manifests that you don't yet really revel in the unmerited mercies of God towards you. And it is not a wonder that God is withholding himself or he will expose your need. And today's text, his word to all of us today is his call. It doesn't have to stay that way. It can be different. He holds out to you a great blessing of his ongoing presence and blessing. Lord, this is a wonderful thing. Why do you need, who do you need to make things right by this morning? I would just encourage all of us who are God's people, as best I can tell, so many of us who have made confessions of faith and we sit here and we sing and we hear the word of God and, we, and I know many of you, you are having your Bible time, you're reading God's word in the daily Bible plan. But is it having the effect in you that God is desiring? Don't be a hearer only. The Bible says it is possible to do what? To deceive ourselves. Well, that's a fearful thing, isn't it? To be self-deceived throughout life and maybe deceiving even a church full of people and then coming to the end of days and standing before the one who knows even the thoughts and intentions of our hearts and finding to our eternal horror that we are not his. Those who are his hear his words. Hear it today. Soften your heart. Let today be a true fast. A fast that pleases God. And he will hear. He will draw near. He will guide you. He will sustain you. He will satisfy you. Oh, listen. Don't just hear another sermon and walk out looking fine on the outside. But inside, you know that you're just full of dead men's bones. On the outside, washed white, but inside, full of nothing but deadness. Is that you? Could be very different. You would really humble yourself before God and man. Let's pray. Oh God, hear our prayers. Grant to us a true fast of our souls before you, we ask in Jesus' name.